Hello, folks. This is Princess. You are listening to the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share with your friends. Yo, you guys, welcome back and thank you for being here again for another episode with me here on the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. You guys, I got a crazy episode in store for you tonight. I got Gary Wayne here. The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. This guy is a wealth of information. He's a Canadian native who's going to hit us with a plethora of information. This episode is jam-packed. Listen, we start off talking about how he started this unique journey that he's been on and we end up going down into history biblical theology mythology lion men dog men demigods fallen angels watchers the little people the elementals dude the bird-like people what and even the salamander people we cover a little bit of everything on this episode gary was a blast to talk with there's so much information here Just get a cup of coffee, get a cup of tea, whatever you're into. Chillax, sit back, and give this one a listen. Let's go. Recently on the Blurry Preachers podcast, man, I was on the edge of my seat. I said, I definitely have to get a hold of this guy. So it's an honor to have you here on the show, man. No problem. No problem. That's kind of what I try and do is I try and raise some curiosity with people. Not sure what kind, what genre your audience is into, but wherever you want to go is fine with me, and we can talk about anything you want to talk about. I deal with a lot of supernatural encounters. We love the Word of God here. I like talking about, you know, persons of faith. I, I really yeah. like jumping into a little bit of everything. I can talk on a wide variety of topics, so no worries. What led you ultimately down this path? If you want to give us like a quick version of how you became the Gary you are today. It's quite a process and a story, but it all begins with uh, sitting down one Friday evening when I was very young and, uh, you know, just an early adult and sitting down with my brother and a friend and we're having beers on a Friday night and we're having more beers. And then late into the evening, one of them says to me, you know, you know, how brave are you? What kind of courage do you have? pretty good, I guess. I don't know. What do you mean? He said, well, if you've got the courage and only if you've got the courage, you know, maybe you should read this book. And it was a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And then they started talking about all sorts of crazy things like false prophet and antichrist and stuff like that. And I'm going, you know, that's pretty bizarre, but I took the challenge. And so I read the book, Uh, not that night, obviously, when I was sober, (laughs) but Uh, I read the book and it scared the socks off of me, but naturally I'm a contrarian. And what that means is I like to verify everything that somebody says, something says, or, you know, anything that somebody says that, um, that they've heard or whatever. So I like to verify that. And so I started checking out the passages and things that he was referring to and, and, you know, and my knowledge wasn't all that deep, but. I thought, you know, he's being pretty darn accurate. And uh, so whether or not he's 100% right or not, or his time frame's 100% right, he's, he's directionally, he's, he's, he's scaring the, the socks off of me. So I thought, I need to verify this even more. So then I decided I need to 
read the Bible and I need to understand this. And then I started reading it and reading it. And then I got you know, over halfway through and I thought, you know, this is crazy. I have to, for in terms of how my mind works, I'm going to have to catalog all of these different story themes, all, whether or not they're prophecy or the prehistory. And there's just so many different narratives that run throughout the Bible. And that's what I was noticing, these patterns of these streams. And so I started to go through that process and spent over 15 years just documenting the narratives and putting them in files. And then I thought, you know, after all of this research and putting it down in, in, in sort of a uh, not a book form, but in just organizing thoughts with verses and stuff. I thought, you know what, I have a lot of material here and there's probably, you know, 10 to 15 books I'd like to write. So I want to see whether or not, A, I can get, I can write a book. B, I could actually get somebody to publish it. And C, would anybody actually read it? So I thought, well, what do I want to jump into first? And I thought, you know, I want to do something easy and short. So I thought, and so I ran across these giants in Genesis 6. So I thought, well, I'm just going to ignore that. But then afterwards, I went back and uh, I recorded all of those narratives as I went along. And then I thought, you know, I, I write a short book about these giants and how they're connected to angels and why all of this kind of kind of shows up in the end time. So I wrote the first 10 chapters really quickly. And I thought, you know what, uh, I have another passion that's history and mythology. And then I thought, well, I know there's parallels with the, the giant story. And so I'm going to start to weave in some of that and maybe do another section. And then that led me into, well, I have to add into more about the religions. So now I've got to research all about the religions. I get into the religions that leads to the mystery schools, which leads to secret societies. And then I spent probably another decade just down those rabbit holes. And then I started to write the book. It turned, I mean, finish the book is probably a better term for doing, for what I'm saying here. And you know, it turned from a small book and probably and hopefully the largest book I ever write. And so that's how I got into it. And then I found as I got out there was is that people were lacking this kind of information in a way I had never really understood or grasped before. And even more information in, on things than what I put in the book or didn't have room to put in the book. And, you know, that's also led me to write a, a sequel to the book that I'm working on right now. That's quite a journey. It sounds like your diligence and passion just kept you going. And uh, Well, not really, um, no. <laughs> to a certain degree, because, you know, it's, it's so many times as you're going through this and down the rabbit holes on so many different things is that you start to say, this is crazy. Yeah. No, nobody's going to believe this. And I dropped it like, a, you know, like a hot potato and let it grow cold but I would get this this calling back to do it oh wow and it just would it just sort of wouldn't go away and or times when I thought the book was finished and I, I wanted it to be finished so many times because it was just taking such a long project or you know well over a decade to write the book and then I'd be almost led to find a book um, and some of the ones I thought I could never get I come across in the most strangest ways, like you wouldn't believe. Like I put the Popol Vuh uh, excerpts into some of the polytheist sections of the book. And, you know, I was tr 
kind of putting in stuff that I was referencing through other authors and stuff, but I don't really like to do that unless I want them to speak in their own words. But I couldn't get the book because it wasn't published, but I'm on a vacation with my wife and we stopped uh, along the Maya Caribbean and we're walking in this uh, small town. It's really, really hot. And my wife says, I need to go into this little convenience store and get a bottle of water. And I walked in and then I just I, get, I just got sort of overtaken by this feeling. And then I walked straight to the back of this small, skinny little convenience store. And they got this small little bookshelf of, of books. And there's the Popol Vuh in there. So I bought it. <laughs> and then I was able to put direct quotes in there. And, you know, for things like on the Zabalba, important, or for me, you know, something, another supporting thing like Vakub Kekwexes, which is the, the Kisha Maya sort of equivalent to, to Satan. So yeah, lots of those kind of bizarre things. I want to ask you, what's the connection between, you know, these Nephilim, these watchers of old and modern cult? Well, that's a fairly large question. So <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try and not make a, a you know, a two hour answer because um, it's just, it's got so many different things to touch on and it's a great question, but I'll try and uh, sort of condense it down. So when you look at the modern cults, typically you've got two kind of cults that we're familiar with. And ones are the cults that have gone sort of wayward in Christianity. So they might be an apocalyptic cult or, you know, like, a, you know, maybe like a Jamestown cult, things like that. And then you have the cults that are, the polytheist cults, which isn't necessarily a cult. It's more of a polytheist religion. And if that's what we're talking about, and I think that's what you're kind of asking, is that this goes right back to the beginning of, you know, the age of humankind, and, and then again starts again after the flood. When we're talking about watchers, as they would understand it, a polytheist cult versus an alien cult or mythos, they would be talking about the same kinds of individuals, but at a different sort of level of, a, of an advanced being. So an alien mythos on a watcher, which would be like an Anunnaki, which would be an alien that's very, very advanced. Whereas a watcher in a polytheist cult would be a very, very powerful God. And or as we would understand that in Christianity, uh, one of the sons of God or one of the fallen angels um, that would have reproduced uh, with a human female to produce uh, hybrid humans and angels uh, that looked just like them and were their divine rulers on the earth. So the watchers are also the people who would have provided the ancient knowledge and a lot of the sort of intellectual dynamite for the religion and the worship thereof. And it's a knowledge cult. When you're talking about watchers, these are those that show up in Genesis 6. And although they're called the sons of God in Genesis 6, you get a group of beings called watchers in First Enoch that are surrounding the throne of God as being angels like the cherubim which would be as they take one of their earthly Anunnaki forms, they can have a single bird head with a, a human body and a vice versa, as opposed to the four faces. And typically that's understood as an Anunnaki watcher, but you also have the seraphim watchers and seraphim are the ones who work before the altar and they are like ministers before God. And they have a fiery 
look to them because they work amongst the fiery stones and they have a serpent face. And you also have a, a couple other groups. You have the archons uh, or the archangels, I'm sorry. And you have the ones that are in the throne and they're typically called thrones in early Christianity. The word is Ophanim, though, that Enoch uses. Yeah. And that's the word that goes back to those cherubim-like angels that are in the wheels in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. And that word goes back when it's talking about those beings, not to Gilgal, as in Gilgal Raphaim, which Gilgal is wheel. And you'll have Gilgal used in the original Hebrew there, but the ones that are talking about the beings goes back to the word Hebrew word Ophan, and I am is the male plural. And those are all called the watchers, the ones who do not sleep, and they surround the throne. And it is the seraphim watchers that are thought in most accounts to be the ones who originally created the Nephilim or the giants as are recorded in the King James Version in Genesis 6-4, those fallen angels. And the term watcher actually shows up in the Bible four times in Daniel 4. And they are angels that are sent by God. And so there's loyal watchers and they have to do with the governance of the earth and carrying out messages from, from God thereof, just as the watchers in the antediluvian epoch were the gods that ruled over the earth. So they had to deal with governance and they had um, dealt with the, the religious aspect, providing the religion, providing the, the knowledge. And what's really kind of interesting as we look at that word uh, watcher, that goes back to the Hebrew word ayir. It is a word that means that those who are awake. And so what we learn from sort of cross-referencing um, Enoch with uh, the ancient Hebrew text and understanding we don't have the original Hebrew text to first Enoch, and that's why it's apocryphal and it also has a few corruptions in it. Yeah. But we can see that it has a direct parallel with words like that that are that you know come from a hebrew uh, lexicon and also you know we also have some verses that sort of go match up very very well like in jude so there's i think i mean i like first enoch a lot i just we just don't have that hebrew manu manuscript to substantiate it so those are the watchers as they're understood and in the alien mythos they have the same roles they're just not considered gods so it sounds like th these guys are the center stage of, of all the old cult they operated thousands of years ago was because of the influence of these watchers. Yeah. Like, you know, the watchers are working directly tandem with demons in the dark spiritual world today. I know the Bible talks about certain angels being chained under the river. I think it's the river Euphrates if yes. I'm remembering correctly. So yes. do you think that those angels would be considered watchers as well that are chained under there? And how many incursions do you see uh, just in the Bible alone of these entities coming down and, you know, tampering with DNA and, and corrupting yeah. our culture? When we look at uh, how many incursions, we're not given an exact number. Okay. Uh, but what we are provided is that in Genesis um six one through four is that they went to daughters of of men and took wives and did so again and you know and continued to do so is, is kind of what we understand from that so there would have been 
more incursions and in, in, in creations of these giants before the flood. Mm -hmm. And one presumes that maybe some of the other angels that had a different kind of look to them uh, may have also violated the laws of creation, to, to put, it, uh, put it mildly, through creating, procreating the, these, these monsters, because these, these were giants. I also think that we have a second incursion after the flood where I kind of fall from a biblical perspective, because it fits the Bible the best in terms of how the angels would survive the flood, because they didn't have to that way. And it's not that I rule that out or a couple of the other theories in terms of how giants show up. It just seems to fit the Bible better, scripturally. Um, but what we do know is we get accounts after the flood. So they come from somewhere. And the Raphaim are the names of the giants after the flood. So Nephilim only shows up three times in the Bible, and once in Genesis 6-4 for the word giant, and then twice in Numbers 13-33, where you have the embellished part of the report of the spies going into Canaan. Yes, yes. And they're embellishing the details that are provided just before that. Um, and so they're using the term giants to describe the Anakim, that they're the children of giants. Well, earlier on, they're the sons of the Anakim, and so that's where the embellishment comes in. And so the Nephilim were thought to be bigger than the Rephaim, and so they're using that to scare the people. And we know the Anakim are Rephaim because in Deuteronomy 2, where it lists many of the Raphaim nations, the word giant there always goes back to the word Rapha. Mm -hmm. And you get the I am plural, and that's Raphaim. And we actually get Raphaim used a few times in the Bible, one being in Genesis 14 in the War of Giants. So that um, between the kings of the east and the, uh, and the kings of Sodom, it's called the War of Four kings against five in, in many accounts, but it's actually a complete giant war. Giant kings coming in to war with the giants who are helping the hybrid humans that they have created. So a hybrid Raphaim human in the Canaanite tribes, but they're dealing, the, the Mesopotamians are also fighting the giants in the Mount Hermon region. They're fighting the giants in Southern part of the covenant land, like the Horim and the Amalekim, and, and as well as the hybrids like the Amorites that are included in there, and also the uh, Sodomite kings who are probably Raphaim kings, but those would be um, hybrid human Canaanites that are living amongst them. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with there, there had to be a second incursion because or just the story of David and Goliath alone, and I know that's such a well-known story, but Goliath had, what, four brothers? Yes, uh, he did. Yes, he did. All, is, all from one giant. Isn't that interesting that David stops and picks up five smooth stones? He was about his business, wasn't he? He was going to go for all five of them. He was. <laughs> it, it, it's not that he thought he was going to miss. Absolutely. We know there's five kings there because the Philistine empire was centered around a pentapolis of cities five cities with kings and also they had a council of kings the lords of the philistines that had several different kinds of hybrids and, and giants that were amongst that ruling council but they had a ruling king and a warrior and goliath was from gath he was a gittite yeah. and so david knew that he was going to may have to kill all five that day 
but wow. he only had to had to kill one, and he only had to use one smooth stone that he picked up. And Goliath, he is six cubits and a span. And we get all of this misinformation that goes out through the churches that says he wasn't really any bigger than maybe eight feet, and that might be an embellishment. I just hate it when our church leaders are saying the Bible isn't accurate. It just it's crazy. Six cubits is the standard cubit is eighteen inches. But if he was a king, which he was, I think, the king of Gath, then it would be 21 inches. But either dimension, that is going to come out from 9 feet 9 inches to 11 feet 3 inches. Wow. So he would have been more than twice the size. And Nephilim were thought to be twice as wide. And, you know, whereas yeah, humans would have... Go out. <laughs> yeah, just as humans would have a... Three to one height to width ratio. They're thought to have had a two to one width ratio, and so in Isaiah twenty-five, you get terrible ones that are being talked about, and the terrible ones, as are recorded in the Bible, are Rephaim kings and Rephaim warriors, just as they're recorded in Ezekiel thirty-two as the terrible ones who are now in the prisons along the sides of the abyss because wow. of the terror that they caused while on earth and th these are the slain kings and so i'm going to come back to that in in a second so if i don't please remind me of it so in isaiah 25 you have these strong ones that are the terrible ones and that goes back to the hebrew word azaz which basically means very very strong and powerful and or stout and so that strength wow. and power comes from the width of them and so when we talk about then the demonic aspect that's connected between angels and Nephilim or Rephaim, the connection comes pretty vividly through Ezekiel 32. So the spirits of these bodies, because they've been slain on the earth, are yeah. locked in the sides of the abyss with their parents locked in the abyss. And all different kinds of these creatures, as, as Pistis Sophia, a Gnostic gospel, describes them as. And, you know, whether they're serpents and, and lion-like and all of these other different depictions that uh, they're depicted as. These ones who violated the laws of creation before the flood. And if there was a second incursion, they would have gone to the abyss as well for those, those crimes. But not all angels are in there, just the worst of the ones and the ones who violated the laws against creation. But the bodies of the giants that were created, they were not going to be immortal in the physical world. So in Genesis 6-3, in the creation of the giants narrative, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, you have God stepping in and limiting life to 120 years because that immortal spirit's not going to rest with these creatures that were just created. First Enoch talks about is, is that the fallen angels were able to pass on their DNA because they took a physical form mm -hmm. and they were able to pass on some of their, you know, super natural sort of characteristics and that included a counterfeit immortal spirit and that's why it's called a counterfeit spirit uh, in in the bible it's called other things elsewhere in the, in the gnostic gospels but using that term when the bodies were no longer immortal they eventually died or they killed themselves um, because they lived to be great ages and eventually the body would wear out but because it's a counterfeit spirit their bodies weren't permitted to go to sleep like humans do. 
and they weren't permitted to go to heaven. So they wander the earth, except mm -hmm. for those worst of the ones, the terrible ones who are locked in the sides of the abyss. So you roll that forward, and Jesus is now encountering these demon spirits, right? And they're afraid that he's going to sentence them before their time. These aren't angels. These are the roaming demon spirits that are possessing humans and possessing even animals because we know this is a different encounter than with angels who have the ability to avatar, uh, be an avatar to an avatar, but that's more of a symbiotic relationship. Scriptural example would be Satan entering Judas to give him the courage to betray Jesus. So um, we do have Satan entering Judas as, a, as an example, and maybe he did that as well with than the cash serpent in in the time of Eden. We don't know. Um, but my speculation is he probably did. Demons, if they want to interact in the physical world, they need a physical body. They need what's called an oikotarian, which is a dwelling place for the spirit. That's the soul and the body. Just as when angels left heaven, they left their habitat. That's the Hebrew, that's the Greek word oikotarian, which means a dwelling place for the spirit. So they had a dwelling uh, place for their spirit in heaven. They can be in the physical world and still be in spirit form. But if they want to take a physical form, they need to uh, create for themselves a soul and a spirit, or a soul and a body for their spirit to dwell in. And that would be how they would be able to procreate with human females. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm really following you close there. I think the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says the angels that disrobed of their former estate. I think it's in reference to the Okateri on there. It makes me think about when you know, the demons not having a body because they wore out and died and they're seeking some type of vessel to inhabit or manipulate. It reminds me, Jesus is on the cross and, you know, he's saying many strong bulls of Bashan have encompassed. Yeah. We see Romans there that are ripping up his rags and we see you know, his follow, some of the followers that are weeping and, and watching him up on the cross. Uh, and that's interesting to me because uh, we see angels appearing and breaking bread with Abraham, right? We see yeah. angels appearing with physical form. So it's really awesome to highlight these things in the Bible because it gets me excited. And I know there's other people that would strongly yeah. agree. So think about this then when you're talking about the bulls of Bashan and uh, the crucifixion and also look at Ezekiel 39 and the Gog War, the end time Gog War, where okay. it's, it's going to be, a, you know, the, the sacrifice of Bashan and Ooh. you have the mighty ones that are there and the mighty ones, <laughs> that's, the, that's the Hebrew word gibor for gibberim, which, yeah. which is used to describe the mighty ones in Genesis 6-4. It doesn't always describe a giant, but yeah. in a lot of cases it does. And what's also in interesting is, is you have the passengers or the travelers, depending on which English translation that you're using there, and that goes back to the Hebrew word abar, to pass over. And that these oh, wow. passengers are crossing over, these travelers are. And what's interesting about that is that in the Ugaritic texts, you have these travelers, which are the Baleen gods who created the Raphaim gods, according to the Ugaritic texts. Mm -hmm. And the gods travel back and forth between the underworld, as do the Raphaim kings, and I'm going to have an account of this in, in, in the new book, and they do so at the time of a funeral um, and or a death. And just as a bar is thought to, you know, it has several meanings, but also crossing over from death is part of its meaning. These, this was 
one of the cities of the Raphaim kings that is, is and they're crossing back and forth between the um, underworld and the earth at the time of a funeral ritual for a death of one of the Raphaim king. And if that term Raphaim and Gilgal sort of hits you in the head when you, as, as something that you might want to dig into, understand that that means the wheel of the giants and it's located at the foot of Mount Hermon. Oh, wow. In Bishan. <laughs> and it has hundreds of dolmens, which is dolmens, a, yes. which are portals to the other worlds. Now, I've heard Derek Gilbert talk about the dolmens. And, I mean, there's just so much there. Before I lose this question, though, I really wanted to ask you this. So these spirits, the demonic entities that uh, are still roaming and lurking the earth, do you think that there's any possible way that they could inhabit technology? Like we see, you know, robotics and transhumanism coming to the forefront. Do you think they're at all capable of uh, manipulating, using, or even controlling technology? Because that would put a really interesting twist on like Revelation 13, where the image was mm -hmm. given life, right? Yes. Oh. Or, or these talking idols in the past that they have the ability to, to a certain degree, manipulate and do some things. I think we look at modern technology, I think we need to take a step back and under, try, and, try and understand is where is the knowledge coming from to build this technology? Exactly. And it's being seemingly guided and advanced at a rate that we can't account for. One would presume if that knowledge is being fed to them, like a lot of people say it is, including people doing the research that they're talking with their celestial masters or the great white brotherhood or aliens. I mean, you get all of these different sort of versions of it. One would expect that they're going to build the technology to be a dwelling place for the spirit, to be able in some sort of, whether it's an electronic format, which is, would be sort of primitive to where they really want to go, but they would make it so that the demons could actually enter into those uh, new technologies and interact in the world. I think what they really want down the road is the clone bodies to have so they're not wrestling with another host spirit. Wow. I've always kind of felt like that too. Like, like ever since I was a little kid, you know, I was a nineties kid, grew up in the nineties and, you know, my dad watched all the Terminator movie, you know, all yeah. that cool stuff back then. And, and I always kind of had that in the, in the back of my mind. I didn't grow up in the church. I mean, we went, you know, intermittently, like most Americans do who say they're Christians. Um, you know, I had yeah. a, a really interesting experience about eight years ago that led me to surrendering my heart to the Lord. But when I was a kid growing up, I always uh, had that inkling, I guess you could say, just something on the back burner about technology and it being a gateway to something we still can't quite put words to. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, and, and, and also enter in that you get this name of Metatron that comes up for oh, wow. one of these beings that is providing uh, this knowledge. And if people aren't aware of where that name Metatron comes from, there are several books of books of Enoch. And in the third book of Enoch, which is very, very polytheist and interesting for a read, but doesn't match up very well with scripture. It's got some nice crossovers with first Enoch, but it's obviously, it's obviously a polytheist uh, uh, ancient book, or it is um, been so corrupted. It's <laughs> but anyways, in that third book, you have Enoch, which in this case is not going to be 
Enoch, son of Jared, of the Sethian line. He's going to be Enoch, son of Cain. And it's amazing how many Christians forget about the fact that in the genealogies, there's two Enochs, just like there's two Lamechs. Mm. And the names are all, all very, very, very close. So this is Enoch, son of Cain, that they're referencing. And he receives all of this knowledge and indoctrination from the fallen angels, and in doing so, transforms into an angel uh, and very much like a son of uh, God or a son of man, as in Jesus' uh, sort of imagery as he's described. And it's this knowledge that he develops because he's the one who's going to create the seven sacred sciences of the ancient epoch that is going to later merge with the illicit knowledge from heaven that accelerates that knowledge that brings about the apocalypse, knowledge of things that they were doing and what has survived for us to see that would be whether or not it's pyramids that they take credit for or Machu Picchu or all of these ancient megalithic sites that we can't create today. Absolutely. That they were able to create and they credit that to Enoch's seven sacred sciences and, and actually Freemasonry actually directly links it in their history to the knowledge of the pyramids being used, the knowledge of Enoch used to build the pyramids. And so this seems to me is that kind of direct connection somehow, some way that we're catching up to the level of technology that they had to mm -hmm. just completely destroy the earth. And when we look at what it says in the flood account where the earth was corrupted and there's this violence and of course they were godless and they didn't expect the flood, but it's that word, the whole earth was corrupted. That is the Hebrew word shakath. And that means more than just violence. It means ruined. It means destroyed. It means decayed and all sorts of words that are used to define Shekoth in that sort of manner. And it says the whole earth was like that. That means all the plant genomes and the animals and the humans were somehow corrupted. And I think that was plant genomes. And I think that was the DNA uh, that was corrupted. And that's why God would have called the not only the eight to be on the ark, because he knew the ones that weren't corrupted, also representative members of each species that weren't corrupted to go on the ark to start anew. And I think that's what we're seeing now, just as you get the overarching sign of the end time that follows the fig tree generation in, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, about it'll be like the days of Noah. And I think that includes all of the life of Noah. And it's the exacting words that you get there in the New Testament that Jesus uses that is copied down in Greek and translated into English. And then you go back to Genesis 9.29. It has the same words, the days of Noah. And they were 600 years before the flood and 350 years after the flood. And I find that really interesting. If that's an overarching sign that we need to learn more about, then you go to Luke's account on that. Not only does he mention the days of Noah, but it's also like the days of Lot when the angels went to Sodom to destroy the city by fire. And I think it's a transition of and a connection to the end time apocalypse of fire and the previous apocalypse of water with the flood. 
But there you have angels that take the body of a physical human. They're recognized as humans and also as angels, and they're wanting to have sex with them. And the point of that is, is that if you can take any sort of physical characteristic you want in the earth, then I don't know whether or not they're wanting to have homosexual sex or they wanted to have them change their form or they wanted to have them have sex with their wives, but possibly to create new Raphaim because they would have been very, very familiar as a city of the Raphaim kings in the time of the Genesis 14 war. And this happens just shortly afterwards that fallen angels have the ability to create the Raphaim, just as the Balim were the ones in the Ugaritic texts who created the Raphaim after the flood. Oh my gosh, I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> All right, hold on. And, <laughs> and, and so then when you get into Jude, when they're talking about strange flesh, maybe yes, you start yes. to answer some questions, right? Yes. Wow. All right. So, and that strange flesh, just to throw some more fuel on the fire, when you take that back to Greek, it actually means like a different kind or a different species. Yeah, an abomination, right? Yeah. That's something that's out yeah. of God's order. It's crazy, man. Okay, so with the timeline, I got a couple more questions I got to ask you. Now, I know there's been an increase in sightings. Now, okay, I get it. Not everybody's being honest and transparent when they say they've seen something, whether it be in the sky, something appears in their bedroom, whatever, some type of cryptid, some type of encounter. Not everybody's being honest, but even if one or two people are literally telling the truth we have a problem on our hands now i'm an experiencer i shared a story with la marzoli which he then confirmed about one of his partners that had spent some time in a location that was uh common to the story i shared with him what are your thoughts on cryptids man i mean are these like some type of um you know vessel that the the dark ones are manipulating or do you think they're they're trying to recreate some type of ancient vessel i mean what do you do with that a lot of people have different definitions for what a, a cryptid is. And is that, you know, I mean, it goes from all sorts of crazy types of beings, right? Yeah. I mean, reptilians, dogmen, sassy, yeah. so, the list goes on and on. Yeah. So I think there's, I mean, in that whole broad spectrum, I think there's room for the possibility of all of this. Um, oh. But with the ones that I've been able to connect more of the dots on, would be, you know, the ones like the dogmen, you know, and the serpentine ones and, and ones like that. So, well, if wasn't you it the Greeks who had, uh, I think they called him the Sinocephalus, which was the head of a dog on a man, even in ancient Greece, and then Anubis yeah. in Egypt, right? Well, Anubis actually, and of course, that's a, uh, one of the parent gods, and yeah. Yeah. he uh, creates through human females um, a whole race of dog warriors <laughs> and anubis it has the face of a dog or a jackal yeah right and his and the city that they lived in was actually called uh Sinopolis. oh my god yeah and these were famous wow. warriors both before and after the flood and we get these accounts through historians yeah down and I've got a three-part document on this for the dogmen, but this is a sort of a consistent sort of doctrine of these these watcher type of angels 
uh, and understanding that there are uh, different, uh, there are other angels that are also in the rebellion that are reproducing with, with human females. So if you get like the lion men of Moab in the Bible, mm -hmm. and, or the lion-like people of Gad, and these are Nephilim type of creatures that are scripturally, you take that word lion-like, just as Arioch goes back to lion-like as one of those four kings in Genesis 14, and connected to the, the, the Hebrew word for lion as Ari, and sometimes even Ariel, and typically when you get uh, that sort of spelling, it's going to mean lion of God or an angel's name. And oh, wow. Just as you have like angels' names ending in Michael or Gabrielle, or on the fallen side, you would have like, you know, Azazel. Um, and so AL tends to be a Hebrew ending for an angel's name. And when we look at the, you know, the lion men of, of, of Moab, um, these were fierce warriors, just yeah. as Nephilim and Raphaim and the dog warriors were fierce warriors. And so you've got gods in the pantheon like Nergal that's recorded in the Bible who was depicted as a lion-faced god. You've got Mahis and Bast and Sekhmet and other gods in the Egyptian pantheon. So it, to me, it makes sense that you would have different kinds of angels producing these types of beings. And just throw one more in there. You have uh, the Anunnaki that I said were like the cherubim, and that's the, the bird-like ones. Just as yep. you have the Anunnaki being gods that are bird-like, just as you have Horus as being a falcon god, and there's, there's other bird-faced gods. There's beings that are created in not we don't get accounts of them in the bible but they're called the tengu created from the tengu gods in southeast asia and they yeah. produced warriors and nephilim that look just like them so uh, you get actual statues even to this day in japan of what they look like so if people wanted to, to do to google t-e-n-g-u you're going to maybe be able to bring up some of these pictures and in the kishimaya popol Vu. You have the Zabalba, which were these owl face kind of uh, yeah. demigods. And there was one, dem one branch of the Zabalba called the Kamazots. C-A-M-A-Z-O-T-Z. -A -A -Z. So if people Google that, they're going to get a picture that looks like Batman. And that's because Kamazots were the house of the bat demigods. Oh, oh. <laughs> Dude, this is crazy. Uh, no wonder why every single culture has this stuff etched in rock. You know, it's like they weren't trying to deceive us. Like people thousands of years ago, we're not trying to deceive the future generations that were etching in rock and recording in their ancient history, what they were encountering, what they were witnessing. Well, they and were I, called, they were called demigods because they're yeah. the offspring of a human female and a God as the demigod was the ancient meaning for demigod. And they were worshiped as gods. So they yeah. were just, putting down for the record and for the narcissistic aspect of the gods and the demigods, you know, who they were and what they looked like. So, yeah, they, I don't think these were fanciful, infer, you know, um, things coming out of their imagination. But you also have all sorts of other creatures, right? And in the hierarchy of, of the rebellious ones, you've got the little people that are, that are involved that are the elementals. And there's three categories of elementals. 
and one of them it would be mischievous ones like you know um, uh, leprechauns and then you've got good-looking ones and then you've also got the ugly ones which are the gnomes and there's also a fourth class that is the salamanders and those are reptilians and they are larger than the little people so the gnomes for example play a large role as the lowest level of the hierarchy in the rebellious hierarchy so the salamanders would be above and the nephilim would be above and then you've got the whole hierarchy of the rebellious angels because the host of heaven you take that back to the hebrew word saba it means army which has rank so oh wow uh, yeah it makes a whole lot of sense and just yeah, another okay. point the parent gods and there's parent gods in all the different pantheons they disappear because the offspring gods overthrow them and which would follow the greek narrative right where you have yeah. the titans fighting you know <laughs> yeah or the sumerian yeah. or all, it's in all of it but you can't kill someone that's immortal they just sort of go away and then the sons or the offspring gods like zeus and uh, baal and osiris and anki they all rise up to to take that position because it's an army but those parent gods weren't killed they were put in the abyss for their crimes. Those are the antediluvian ones. And even though the offspring gods were around before the flood, they probably didn't create those violations against creation. But because they took over again after the flood, so in the Greek, you've got like Zeus, who is the father of Hercules, which is a post-diluvian mm -hmm. giant as opposed to antediluvian, I think. Or mm -hmm. sometimes I go both ways in terms of when he created it. But uh, because of some of the inconsistencies in the polytheist accounts but you have those ones that disappear after the flood as well like the Baalim just sort of disappear they're being worshipped but they're they're no longer interacting that's because i think they violated the laws of creation and then they went to to the abyss so when we look at what was going on with the fallen angels not only were they creating these beings through some sort of copulation but they were also able to create chimera type of animals through dna manipulation which the book of enoch talks about the mixing of animals the mixing of plants right yes it, it wouldn't be out of the out of the question for them to be up to the same old dirty tricks that they were back then now but on a smaller scale and the bible i believe is the word of god i believe it means what it says and says what it means like chuck missler would say the post-diluvian angels probably after the second incursion that weren't the rebellious ones that weren't put into the abyss would be saying, hey, we may be doomed, but we don't have to go to the abyss. So what we're going to do uh, is, is we're going to teach this knowledge to humans so that they yep. do it for us, just like we use, like, just like they use humans to slander God. That's why they're, the humans are called beasts and part of the beast empires. And the hybrids will do the same sort of thing, the, the demigod, Nephilim and Raphaim. All right, so real quick, I didn't want to forget this question I've had in my head for you. Now, Dagon, right? He's the god of the Philistines. He's sometimes depicted as like uh, the lower portion of a fish or almost like he has a fish cape on or a fish suit. Do you think that that was some type of like acknowledgement of, yes, there was a flood from this god, but Dagon was able to survive, thrive in the flood even? Do you think that's a direct hit against Yahweh, the god of creation? Well, I mean, Dagon is kind of part of the uh, Philistine uh, understanding of, of the pantheon. And Dagon tends to be more of a post-Diluvian god than before. Uh, I don't think he's the part of the original Oannes, um, which also before the flood provided knowledge and civilization. 
there's a lot of, as you, as you look at the translations that are coming out for Dagon as being a fish god, there's a lot of people think that maybe that should be reptilian. It could be or it could not be. But what we do know is this, is whether it's before the flood, and I'll use this as, as, as the easiest example, is, is you have Iapetus, who is a parent god who created the giants Gog, Magog, and Elbion, as a, uh, just a few that he created. Wow. He is the god of the sea. Okay. Right? And Poseidon takes over afterwards. And so Dagon is very much like a Poseidon or an Anki, um, as opposed to a god of the heavens, which would be Enlil versus Anki, which would be Zeus versus Poseidon being on the earth or the water. They, they have responsibilities in the realms of, in the hierarchy, right? So I think, I think it's just a different name for the same kind of god that's recorded um, after, you know, after the flood, and just as all of the gods after the flood, they're a personification of having the same positions that they moved up in rank to the parent god. So they're like an allegory mm -hmm. for the parent god. And then you look at the parent gods of the Egyptians, and you've got all sorts of strange-looking creatures, crocodile-type gods, and yeah. serpent-like gods. And then in the Sumerian pantheon and the parent gods, you've got you know, Leviathan-like gods, like mm. Tiamat and uh, Abzu as being, you know, the, the husband of Tiamat. And Tiamat is, you know, essentially described the same way as Leviathan is in the Bible. And get this, Tiamat is the one who creates these scorpion beings that are used to keep the lower gods in line. But she gets killed, I think goes to the abyss. And the scorpion beings look and, and as they're inscribed on reliefs in the Middle East, they, they have the same description on the relief and as they're written down as what's coming out of the abyss with Apollyon when the abyss is open. And they had the power to destroy the earth. And so they were also individuals that guarded the sun temples and the passages to the underworld where, where, the, where the abyss is located. And Tiamat had a husband, Absu, and Tiamat um, is, as I said, an equivalent type of creature as described in the Bible of Leviathan that also had multiple heads and lived in the, in the sea and um, created all sorts of different beings and also was killed just as Leviathan was. And so there's a lot, you can make a strong case that one of the parent gods might be Satan and Tiamat was one of his wives. And in the end time, as recorded in Isaiah, that Leviathan's going to be killed again. So uh, first he goes to the abyss and then to the lake of fire. You know, all this really has me thinking like from the macrocosm to the microcosm. Uh, cosm of all these different things like jesus really saved us from a lot more than we know you know he's really conquered a lot more than i think we can wrap our heads around just taking a dive into some of these topics with you it's it's got my head spinning i, I mean same thing with Derek gilbert when i had him on my head was spinning i'm like there's so much information this is great it, it really makes me want to um you know sit down and look at you know peer-reviewed research to read more books on these topics from, from well-respected gentlemen, just like yourself, Gary, I got one more question for you. Um, sure. And, and 
what is your thoughts on the, uh, you know, all these stories from underground military bases being inhabited by extraterrestrials or, or foreign entities of some sort? Do you find any truth in any of these testimonies that kind of range, you know, all over the place at this point? Yeah, they are. They're, they're kind of in that same zone as all the stories that come out of Antarctica. Yes. So, yeah. you know, I think we have to be careful with it. I think there's, you know, we can speculate on, on it. I think what we do know is they have underground bases and whether or not they built them or they were there before, we do know that they've got those types of bases and the consistency in the stories and particularly with, you know, the, the reptilian one very much sounds like that salamander elemental or perhaps an Akash, a serpent that was maybe perhaps saved by the fallen angels that some of them were saved or they illegally recreated them. And maybe that's why we have that fourth class with the salamanders and in, in, in the elementals. And also there's reports of Nephilim being held in stasis down there. And we also know that there are many underground cities, whether or not it's Global Techie, many underground cities in Mexico, all over the world. It's not an unknown, uncommon phenomena that nobody has an adequate explanation for. So we have all of that sort of brewing. And then we sort of link in, like in Revelation 6, for example, when they think it's the day of the Lord uh, with the wrath bulls and Armageddon. It's not. But all the kings of the earth go into the caves. And I think that oh, might wow. be a reference to these places for protection, just as those may have been places of protection maybe for the flood somehow, to, and maybe answers how some of these creatures might, may have survived the flood. Not my position, but I recognize that that might be a possibility. Yeah. And you link that in with that we have that overarching sign of... It will be like the days of Noah and somehow, some way, I think we're going to have an impact of Nephilim in the end time, just as we're going to have an impact of the fallen angels. And we know that because you have these rebellious angels being released in Revelation 9, and then you have the war in heaven that mm -hmm. happens at the midpoint of the last seven years. And you have all of these other angels that haven't been sent to the abyss that have been interacting and working with the polytheist forces throughout history um, in the background, as with the, the roaming demons. So I think we're going to see all of that sort of come to a head. So now if you can imagine that, these polytheist forces are, you know, globalist forces that are trying to bring about the end time because they want this rendezvous with destiny to win the battle against God, to win their freedom. And they're deluded by the fallen angels to believe that, even though they know it's not, not true. They are working with these polytheist forces to bring this about. And that comes through the beast empires that control everything. And, you know, Paul was very clear in explaining to us that we're fighting both the visible and the invisible and the flesh and the spirits. And they are all trying to ensure humankind doesn't reach their destiny. And so they are, I think, working with these forces of, and there's so many different kinds when you get into the hierarchy of, of the angels is, that we've been referencing, that they would be preparing for this rendezvous with destiny with all of their allies. And so it would make sense that they have to keep them hidden 
and underground locations would make a lot of sense. Wow. That's um, a really detailed and an excellent answer and view on that. And it all kind of clicks together. You know, dude, you're a wealth of knowledge. It was an honor to be able to ask you some of these questions that have been floating in my head. I really like your approach and your perspective. Um, you definitely have put the time in and uh, it shows, man. I just really thank you for being here and taking this time. And, and uh, you know, once again, sorry about uh, trying to get everything figured out here in the beginning. Somebody in the airways definitely didn't want us having this recording tonight. It felt like everything <laughs> was going wrong that could. Yep. That's the usual when we get into topics like this. So, and you know, one of the things I like to do in, I give some very long answers, but people want, I think people want more meat, more details. And, and so instead of just sort of alleging it, um, I like to give, you know, the context and where that information comes from. And so when I put out a document, for people to read, I put the footnotes in there where the sources come from. Or in my book, um, The Genesis 6 uh, Conspiracy, there's over 100 pages of endnotes. You can verify where I'm getting my information from. And that's so respectable because for so long, us as a people have been quenched of good information and good research. And, uh, you know, Hollywood's been entertaining us with these half-truths and these crooked and perverse ideas. And, you know, the whole entire world chases after the, the spiritual wickedness that is currently in the rulers and principalities powers that are operating. So to be able to have a biblical approach and to, and to try to make sense of these things, I don't think any of us really have has it all figured out. But, man, you know, you read through the gifts. And uh, I think it's Second Corinthians, you know, there's a gift of teaching you know, shepherding, right? There's all these different gifts and there is a place. I think the body of Christ really needs to realize there's a place for this information. It shouldn't be all day, every single day, nonstop, you know, vampires and ghosts, but like th there's definitely a place for this. I'm one of those guys that, you know, I, I got saved in a courtroom right outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I remember asking God, I said, well, what do I do with, you know, like the ghost encounters and the things I've seen, you know, shooting into the sky. Like, like, God, do you, you know, I, I had such a, a weak perspective of the Bible because I didn't grow up reading the Bible and have a strong background on it. So I really wanted to know, God, do you cover these topics? Do you have authority over all of these strange things that uh, seem to be running rampant? And it's awesome to see his patience and uh, the journey he's allowed me to be on for the last eight years now. So this is exciting because I know there's a lot of other, I get people coming up to me, Gary, and they're like, these are the same questions I have. Thank you for asking that, right? <laughs> or like, it's, it's so important that we take some time and we allow each other to share this information. And it's been an honor. It's been an honor to have you on the show, man. Well, thank you. And, you know, the frustrating part is that you're not going to get these answers for the most part from the churches. Absolutely. They don't teach, they don't teach prehistory properly and they don't teach prophecies. So, they're really leaving people unprepared. If this is indeed the fig tree generation, then they are failing their flocks. Absolutely. Well, why don't you tell the audience where they can find you? Genesis 6 with the number 6 conspiracy.com. And on the website, if it doesn't come up uh, with the search engine that you're using, some of them aren't bringing that website up for some reason these days, but Google is, and I'm not promoting Google in any way, but I do know it works or get a hold of me. Um, at my, you know, email.
genesis6conspiracy at gmail.com. I'll send you the, any documents or information I have or answer any questions. You get a hold of me and I will get back to you. And on my website, though, you have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. So you can get a good feel for you whether or not it's the, the book for you or not. And I think the table of contents is going to grab your attention. And you can also link over to uh, get a, a Kindle version on the website or to Amazon.com or to BarnesandNoble.com or get a signed copy from, from myself. Definitely go check out Gary's webpage. Go, go order the book. I have so many more questions for you. I really hope we can do a part two. I would love to have you sure. back and yep. follow up on, on all this information. I got so many more questions. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, just a matter of uh, you know selecting a date. So That's it. That's the show, everybody. Thank you for being here with me again for another episode. If you guys found this to be educational, helpful, it got you to think deeper and to take the word of God serious and share this with a friend, Coming to you from southeastern Pennsylvania. God bless America. And good night. Wait a second. You're not still here, are you? Listen, if you're still here, you are awesome. <laughs>